may have looked at the title uh, of our message today and uh, felt like it seems a little bit out of place, I'll confess uh, this is not a passage that has to do with local church per se. Uh, It's not specifically mentioned right here in these verses. I do want to make a connection. At the very end, uh, chapter 1, crescendos into this amazing presentation of the the rule and authority, the power and the dominion of Jesus, that he is above uh, every name, not in this just in this age, but in the age to come, and that he is, uh, all things are under his feet, and he is the head over all things to the church, all right, so the church, the the worldwide, the gathered church is is there, and uh, sometimes uh, when we participate in a local church, we get excited about it, we get excited about different uh, ministries or programs or events or things that are going on, and and those are great, we all have different gifts and abilities, and we use those to uh, administer the church and to help things function and to take care of a a building, Uh, those are all sorts of things that fall within the the realm of scripture, Uh, but a lot of times if we get involved in some of those things, we lose the we might lose the core focus. We might forget about why we are here. And there is such a powerful presentation of God's work in our lives as believers in chapter 2 that I hope today that we are encouraged. I hope that this reminds us of everything that God is. And if you're listening to this this morning and you are questioning and you are wondering who God is and how he might work in your life and what might it take for you to have a relationship with Jesus, I hope that these words are just as powerful for you as well. Chapter 2, verse 1 starts, and you, and you. So for the first three verses, this will be our heading. I want to see some things that Paul writes. And the yous are plural. This is to a group of believers that he described in chapter 1 who are adopted, their identities are changed, they're welcomed into the family of God, they're chosen by God, they're sealed by the power of the Holy Spirit, among some other things uh, that are are, shown there in chapter 1. And immediately, Paul goes from this high crescendo of presenting the authority of Jesus down to reminding believers where they were before Christ. And the first thing that we find out in the first verse of chapter 2 is that they were dead. You were dead in the trespasses and sins. From this amazing portrayal of Jesus' authority all the way down to you are dead in trespasses and sins. God does not exist to make good people a little better. God works in a way that he brings dead things alive. There's a huge difference. If you have found yourself believing the first part of that statement, that maybe God is just trying to make already good people a little bit better, let this language confront that view as untrue and unhelpful. We are dead in our trespasses, and there is no sin that is more or less dead in God's view. Every sin 
we have, every sin we as human beings commit, leads to death. We are dead in trespasses. We are dead in sins. Verse 2. Uh, no, before we get there, let's do a reminder of how that happened. Genesis 3. All right. What you see here, uh, as you scan through this, is a reminder of the fall of mankind. God had created uh, the garden uh, in its perfection. That man and woman would walk in obedience. And here uh, we see uh, a giving in of the desire for wisdom, uh, giving in to temptation, uh, appeal of the eye, the flesh, and uh, they, they partake. Adam and Eve uh, both partake in eating the apple, uh, and sin and its consequences begin to unfold from there. Verse 2, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Some general language here. I want to put a, a name on this uh, course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air. Uh, the name that we put on this being, this real person, this is not a, a fantastical character uh, that you might read in a, about in a comic book. In scripture, there is a real person, and his name is Satan. In our sin, we are, we are dead in, in trespasses and sin, and we followed Satan, it sounds really kind of harsh to say, but it's true, and it's reality. We followed the course of this world. We followed the prince of the power of the air. I want to show you another way that Paul uh, describes this. He talks about the Lord's servant, must not be quarrelsome, kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness, God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. Now, this may raise some questions uh, to you. Uh, how much power uh, does Satan have? Satan is an influential being. There are a couple of things right here in this verse uh, that are helpful. Follow the course of this world. We would view uh, Satan as being uh, in charge of the worldview, uh, the world and its system of thinking that is opposed to God. The prince of the power of the air. The power, that word here is the same, uh, ver same word if you want to peek back at verse 19 and it talks about the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. Okay, so the, the same power attributed to Jesus, the same word is attributed to Satan. It's not equal power, it's just the same word. But what Paul is communicating is that Satan does have power to influence our world. The prince of the power of the air, what is that about? It's about a, a spiritual realm where spiritual battles are fought. This sounds like comic book stuff. If you don't know a whole lot about how Satan operates, this is part of how it's explained. This is the way that Satan comes at us. He rules over the world and its systems apart from God, and he desires to keep people trapped there. 
his influence in the spiritual realm. There's several passages in the Bible that show uh, that Satan has some influence in, in the spiritual realm. He's ultimately overpowered by Jesus. We'll see that even today. But he has a lot of influence. And so, absent Jesus, we are under his uh, ways. We are under uh, the, the model of the world, the prince of the world. And it's why uh, Romans 12 and 1 and 2 are so important. Look about halfway down the screen. It says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. It's such a powerful picture that Paul paints. When we are in Christ, we don't conform to Satan's ways. We don't conform to the world's ways. We conform to something else, and that is to following Christ, and it takes thinking in different ways. So you were dead in sins and trespasses. You followed Satan. Third, you lived for yourself. Verse 3 uh, talking about the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived. Let me just stop there for a minute. Sometimes it's easier to group other people into a category of having followed Satan. It's easier to, to well, that group of people, or that person's kid, or because of their belief or because of what they look like or whatever it happens to be, it's easier to group somebody else into that. And Paul is writing Ephesians to an audience both Jewish and Gentile, and we'll get to in a couple of weeks some really powerful stuff about how both groups of people and all groups of people come together under Christ. But in order to see how all groups of people and all peoples on the earth come together under Christ, we have to know that all people, we all once lived in the passions of our flesh. We all pursued Satan. It's easier to put somebody else in there. But no, without Christ, we're living for ourselves. What a powerful way for Paul to say this. We all are this way. Now, you might ask a question. Don't unbelievers do good things? Don't they do nice things? Don't they love people? Sure, they do. But these things are limited because they're not done for God's glory. They're still under Satan's control. And they're still coming from spiritually dead people who cannot by themselves or their acts fully please God. It sounds really harsh, but I'm really hopeful today that you'll, you'll dial into what this, what this really means. Think about it as an individual. Who am I? This series is about identity. Who am I? If, especially if you came to Christ a long time ago and you're just used to enjoying God's forgiveness. You've, maybe you've grown and you've uh, been used by God and God has done great things and you've matured. And you may, it may be a long time ago that you remember thinking or acting this way. And you might think, well, I was a little kid when I, when I came to Jesus. I, I didn't follow Satan. Yes, you did. I wasn't. That, yes, you were. It says that way. I'm not trying to be mean. We have to get this into reality. I put a couple of pictures up here 
to, to show this. And, and, and in, in showing these, I want you to understand the heart behind this. It's not to glorify people who are known for, for being evil. Uh, but I, I want to show you, here's, here's one guy. Um, you might recognize him. This is the leader of North Korea. Okay? Now, he was born at some point to his mother and father. And I don't know how old he is. I didn't do my research. I don't really care. And it says in here that he follows Satan and that he is dead in his trespasses and sins and that he lived according to the passions of the flesh. Do you know who he's the same as? That guy right there, according to Ephesians chapter 2. He's the same according to what this is saying. This guy right here, one of the worst perpetrators of evil and death our world has known. Seems like a really awful guy. And we can nod our head and we can go in here dead in trespasses and sins and follow the course of this world and follow Satan. But according to this, he's just the same as this guy right here. Caleb agreed to this, by the way. I want you to know that, that this was a part of an office discussion on Friday. We're not just, you know, making surprises here on Sunday morning. Uh, this is a guy uh, whose name is David Berkowitz. I'm not here to glorify him either, but he did a lot of bad things. And he was really well known, I think, back in the late 70s or early 80s. Uh, for doing some bad stuff. And you might think yeah, he's dead in his trespasses and he followed Satan. And he's really just the same. Oh, yeah, we put a woman up there. <laughs> and Jen agreed to this. It's no surprise. He actually made the slides. So she knew she was going to be on there. That's how, that's how it works. Now, we may chuckle a little bit, but I hope the point... Lands. Now, this last guy, if you do your research on him, when he got to prison, he will actually talk about doing those crimes of being under the influence, uh, almost feeling at times like he was out of his mind. He, he, he has uh, claimed in prison that he is a follower of Jesus Christ, and there is some evidence uh, that he has been, been healed from some of the demonic things that he did. Okay, so this is bringing uh, Ephesians 2 to life. All right, we live for ourselves, our desires of our flesh, the passion of the flesh, the carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. We think and we act in ways we are by nature children of wrath, meaning that we are under God's curse. We are under his anger for our sin because he is a perfect and holy God. And, and what he does is he demands perfect holiness, and when he can't do it, he his, can't receive it, his wrath flares. And so we as human beings are dead in our trespasses, and by our nature, then we are children of wrath. Now, those of you who are parents are going, oh, don't talk about my kid like that. It seems so harsh. It seems so difficult, because we want to prop ourselves up in our nature against somebody else who clearly must, must be much worse than we are. Surely there's some evil ruler that is way worse than I. I can't be a children of wrath. That's reserved for somebody else. No, I am a child of God's wrath. I am dead in my sins. I did follow Satan. I did live for myself. Now, 
This is where I get really excited because it's not the end. It's not the end of Ephesians. It's not the end of the train of thought. I so believe and have so experienced in my life power and victory, and it's because of transitions like verse 4. The first two words of verse 4, if you're staring at it, you have your Bible open, say, but God. Everybody say, but God. But God. And if you did a Google search for but God, you might end up in Ephesians chapter 2. This is a wonderful, wonderful thing. As awful as these three points under the plural you of all believers who have ever come to Jesus Christ are not stuck there. We have hope. We can say, but God. Let's look at what God has done. Let's explore this. Let's explore the mighty act of God to give us hope in the face of such terrible truth about ourselves in the first three verses. All right, but God, verse 4, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. Andy was right earlier when he said these words, grace and mercy, uh, love, a lot of them run together. Uh, so at the end of verse 4, we find out he loved us. Rich in mercy. It's like somebody who has a lot. It's like when you're getting whooped in Monopoly and your opponent has like so much money they, they can't even count it, right? You're counting because you, you know how much it's going to take the next time you land on that spot and you are trying to figure out if you have enough and you're getting whooped and whoever's playing you has a stack and they're just like throwing $100 bills around like it doesn't even matter. They've lost a few under the board. So it goes. Rich. God is rich in mercy. When it comes to mercy for our dead and self-seeking and Satan-following selves, he's rich. He's got bank when it comes to our need for forgiveness and our need for compassion. That's how, the best way to understand the word mercy out of the Greek is compassion. One who feels that spot, that difficult spot of another. He loved us. The Greek word here is agape. It is a love that is not earned. It is not a performance love. Oh, Johnny, thank you for sweeping the kitchen floor and wiping down the counters. I love you so much. And we may feel that way sometimes. Parents in the room, then you're wondering what trouble Johnny is in and why he has cleaned the kitchen. That's not the way God's love works. His love is for us. His covenant that he makes is, is for us. We do not have to earn, and we cannot earn his love. The great love with which he loved us. That word great connects with the great multitude in Revelation chapter 7. Nobody could count. There's this massive group of people before the throne. It says nobody could count. It's the same word, great multitude. So it implies a lot, a lot of love. That's God. He's rich in mercy. He's got great love, and he loved us. 
He made us alive. I always find it ridiculous when people like fake their own death to try to get away with something or whatever. I found this story. Uh, John Darwin, uh, this is the early 2000s, a former teacher and prison officer uh, in England faked his own death uh, March of 2002 by canoeing out to sea and disappearing. His ruse fell apart in 2006 when a simple Google search revealed a photo of him buying a house in Panama. He was arrested and charged with fraud. His wife was also arrested and charged for helping Darwin to collect his life insurance of 250,000 pounds. Trying to appear dead, really being alive, Humans do these feeble things sometimes to play with such serious matters. I hope you read verse 1 as a, a, a critical, highly important, urgently important, serious matter when it says you were dead in your trespasses. But all the more so, even when we were dead in our trespasses, God is still the subject here. He made us alive together with Christ. Dead things come alive because of God's work and our identity in Christ. There must be a force from outside of your soul and mine that makes the state of death change. There must be grace uh, it says at the end of this, by grace you have been saved. There must be a saving. There must be a realization that we are in a perilous, a desperate state and cannot save ourselves. A lot more on that next week as we look at verses 8 through 10. But it's written and it's communicated in a way that human beings are not responsible for God's work in our lives. No being can be responsible for bringing it himself or herself, no human, back to life. It points to who God is and what he does. So verse 5, we're made alive. Verse 6, maybe you scanned ahead. He and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Now, if verse 5 says he made us alive, why would, the verse 6 kind of seems redundant. How are we raised up? What is that about? Well, it's an allusion to the future, of course, where uh, after our death and at the right time, uh, we would be raised up to be with Jesus. We are taught that that will happen uh, should we die before the Lord returns. So those uh, who die wait in an expectation that their bodies will be raised to be with Jesus. Their souls wait with him in the meantime for that event to come. And so in that sense, yes, we are raised up, but after we are made alive spiritually, how are we raised up spiritually? Well, in the meantime, he loved us, he made us, he raised us up. I want you to understand the way these statements are made. Sometimes you, you might think that language is a little bit boring, and I, I won't go into all the specifics of the tense and, and how this works, but the tense that's used in the Greek communicates that all of these things that we're exploring here about but God, they're not just events of happenstance. These are statements 
of certainty because of the way they're communicated in the Greek. So God, who is eternal, has accomplished these things for people who used to be the way described in, in the first three verses that we looked at, and now are the way these verses are rolling out since verse 4. He raised us up. Certainty. With certainty, we are raised up. The same language is echoed in other places that Paul writes. It's, this isn't the only place that he does this. And it's not that we're not here. We're, of course, we're on earth. But it's that we have a heavenly view and a heavenly understanding. We can pray for that and we can ask God for power and authority. This is why I believe in victory. I don't want anyone in this room to feel they're stuck in the same sin over and over and over. No, Jesus didn't die for us to keep doing the same things over and over. He died to break us free. And part of the power of being made alive, the force from outside of our body that raises our dead soul to life in Christ, is the same soul that says you're raised up and you have a heavenly perspective and you can pray for and receive the power of God in your life. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead is the power that lives in you and me. We're raised up into that position where we can understand spiritual realities. If we can see in Scripture how, how Jesus defeated Satan, we can follow those tactics and we can understand it and we can have power over the things that dog us or enslave us or addict us or whatever it happens to be. We're raised up. That's the part. That's the, the power of the promise. I got so excited I didn't even click it. <laughs> Did you figure it out by now? Raised up. Finally, we're promised future riches. Not like an investment opportunity where you can average out the percentages over the past 20 years. This fund has increased by an average of 12.2% per year. All right, we're not hoping for that or basically, no, this is promised. So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. There are promised future riches, guarantee of eternity amazing experience with Christ forever and ever that we cannot even imagine their guarantees. Do you see this contrast? I hope if you're struggling today and you're not certain if you're a believer that you can identify the first three verses. That you can identify feeling dead in sin like you're going nowhere. I hope you understand that all human beings at their birth are a part of the world system and underneath Satan's influence. We follow those ways naturally. By nature, we're objects of God's wrath and that we live for ourselves. We follow our own passions, our own desires, our own thinking. And we change that, not by our own effort, but we change that by believing in who Jesus is. Chapter 1 went out of its way multiple times to show that when, when the believers put their faith in what God had done through Jesus, they become uh, heirs of those promises. They become part of God's family. And so it is belief. And we'll look really hard at that next week. I saved out those three verses, 8, 9, and 10, because they're so wonderful, they deserve a sermon all to themselves. But know that we don't change any of this by ourselves, that it must be because of Jesus. We must look at the cross where he suffered. We must look at the fact that he uh, was buried in a tomb and rose from the dead on the third day 
and we would say, I want him to be the authority of my life. I recognize my sin. I recognize my brokenness. I can't get out of it myself. I must make Jesus the authority of my life because of his great love for me. I can't earn it. I want to be whole in that relationship. I want to grow in it, and I want to go back and help people in that state, that dead state, find life as God makes them alive, just like he does for me couple of points of application. Please, if you're struggling in sin, confront it today with the authority that God makes us alive and wants us to kill it. He raises us up. Have a heavenly perspective on your life and your sin. If you're trying to impress God, I hope these verses will challenge you to stop and instead to trust God. That we could increase praise for God who is so rich in mercy. Are you concerned for loved ones who are without Christ? Ask God for the riches of his mercy to appeal to them. Are you struggling with past guilt? God has more spiritual money than you do. You can't keep trying to pay over and over for that sin all those many years ago or all those many weeks ago. You can't keep trying to pay for it over and over God's riches to forgive you are more spiritual money than you will ever have. Please allow the Holy Spirit to speak to you that you're, you're loved and you're forgiven and you don't have to hang on to it anymore by the power of who Jesus is and by the power of what will never amount to. We'll never earn that forgiveness. So please, if you're struggling today with past guilt, Know that God loves you, and he does forgive you. The promises are true. I hope this gives us a view of church, of each other committed in a local church. I hope this gives us a view of other local churches, how we can see each other experiencing God's power, and I hope this gives us a view of people who don't yet know this power, that we would so desire that from their spiritual death, they would, they would experience the power of who Jesus is and to know him.